everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. We're starting a new series today for the summer. And, uh, you know, getting out of the smells, bells, robes, and other stuff. Uh, I, but I, I think that this, this sermon series is going to be deeply connected because we're, we're moving from what it means to be a people who God has set aside as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, for his work in the world. And uh, hopefully what you gain from the last sermon series is that your identity as a part of God's family, one of his people, when you, when you, when you uh, received the work of Jesus for yourself on the cross, and when you said, he's my Lord, and I'm going to learn the way of Jesus, you entered into his people. Like those were signs and markers that you belong in his family. Uh, what the writer of Hebrews says is like circumcision of the heart. When you, when you make that step of faith. You belong to God's people. And so you took on this role as one of his priests. One of the people who are going to mediate between humanity and God. Both directions. We have particular roles. And uh, this last sermon series I think was a lot about identity. But, uh, but I think that there's, there's a lot to unpack in terms of what does it mean to do the things that we're called to. The day in, day out, needy greedy of the way of Jesus. How do we do those things? And so uh, we've got another strange word we're going to use. Liturgy. Liturgy is a weird word, right? Like what, what is it conjure in your mind when we say the word liturgy? Can we turn on the side lights so I can see faces? I can't see anything right now. You can just start saying, what, what does the word liturgy mean to you? Oh, calendar, like a liturgical calendar, yeah. It's like a, a way of shaping a year, yeah. What does that word conjure up? Service, okay. Like, uh, what, what do you mean by service? Oh, so serving and worship service, both of them are connected with their word liturgy, okay. Call and response, because in liturgical churches, you do this call and response sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. What is a liturgical church versus a non-liturgical church? Have you heard those terms before? All churches have liturgy. All churches have liturgy, yeah. Bob, Bob knows where I'm going at. Uh, yes, so there's, but, the, but we have these terms. Like we have liturgical churches, which are, are people who take the liturgical calendar seriously, um, who, have, who have a regular rhythm of ways that they do worship. Um, and then you have churches like us who have different kinds of liturgy, <laughs> much lower liturgy. And, and what, what do we mean when we say liturgy? We're talking about the way that we worship, like how we do our week in and week out. Um, it's kind of like a, it's a weird special religious word. You know how like some words are only used in, the, in like a certain way? You won't hear the word liturgy in your marketing meeting normally. You won't hear it on the construction site you won't see it in social media. It's not an everyday kind of word. That's one of the reasons I wanted to use it was I wanted to gather back its meaning 
take it back from this highly religious kind of thing. Um, I think when people think of liturgy, we think about like a special religious training. Like if you go to, um, let's say an Eastern Orthodox or a Catholic seminary or even an Episcopal seminary, you're going to have several classes that are geared towards learning the liturgy. How you do Mass. Because Mass itself is this liturgy of words, ideas, songs, actions, how we do Sundays. And so um, it's kind of special religious training. If I asked one of you to probably perform a Mass, many of you would probably struggle. My guess is. <laughs> Mostly because you know, I know many of you have not been part of Orthodox or Catholic sort of uh, religious communities. It's kind of a standard order of events is the way that it's used mostly. But the irony is that liturgy, the word liturgy, comes from, it's a, it's a Greek term. It's meant to mean the work of the people. Lay is the people and ergos is work. It is the work of the people. It's not special religious kinds of work. It's at la laity, um, L-E-I, that, that word in Greek is meant to mean like all the peoples. We use it when we talk about laity, like when we talk about the clergy and laity. Uh, laity is everybody. Everybody belongs. So when we talk about liturgy, we're talking about literally what is the work of the people? What are we supposed to do when we gather? What are we supposed to do when we're scattered out in the world throughout the week? Um, we, have, we have changed how we talk about things because language is so filled with uh, connotations that maybe, maybe don't mean what we think that they mean. And so we don't call our gatherings worship services. You'll actually you'll have a hard time finding a place where we use the term worship service. What do we call what we do on Sundays? Our Sunday gathering. We don't use service because in a lot of ways... Um, the word worship service, uh, it's been distorted into a consumer, um, people come expecting to be served when they go to a service. That's what they expect. They show up at a church to be served by a worship service that will feed them the spiritual nutrients that they need for the week ahead. But we use the term gathering because that's what Jesus called his people. Church or ecclesia means the gathered up ones, the called out ones, our, our gathering that we do together. We call it a gathering because we want the people to do the work in a public service together, both to God and to the world. Us gathering on Sundays is this priestly duty of the people creating a holy place through our gathering so that the world themselves will have access to God in a place on a Sunday. Now, we believe that God's Spirit is everywhere and drawing people at all times and all spaces, but there's something that happens when two or three or more are gathered in Jesus' name. What happens is it goes from being um, a little candle to a flame, a little bit of presence to a bright light. That's why we gather, is to do the work of the people in this priestly duty of mediating between God and man. We do this thing when we gather, we call it worship. 
And uh, we've equated worship with music or prayer. We've, we've kind of like tried to expand what the word worship means, but I think this is, this is the key thing that we need to, we need to focus in on as a people, um, is that what we're called to do is to worship, but worship is not a set set of actions or duties or liturgies. What is worship? I know many of you have heard kind of the etymology of worship, which is to show worth through like honor or service. It's like a condition of being worthy. Um, but I, I did a little bit of nerding out on the word worship. And uh, who here knows a little bit about Proto-Indo-European? Any, any linguistics majors out there? So before there was English, there was Old Norse, uh, Anglo-Saxony, Ger Old Germanic, and like this group of European languages. But before there was that group of European languages, there was this meta-language called Proto-Indo-European. And it was basically before the Tower of Babel is what like the time frame that they think Proto-Indo-European is, okay? So when you go back and you look at the word worth, the, the word that we use, which is worth, it literally directly goes back to a word that's probably 10,000 years old. And what it means in Proto-Indo-European is to turn or to wind. Isn't that a weird, like when you talk about worth, worthiness, something that is to be turned or to be wound. And I, I thought about that for a minute, and I think that the word picture that these ancient people were trying to draw upon when they talked about worship, which is one of the oldest words that we have across many different languages, is that when you put something under pressure, like particularly something like a rope, when you turn it or you wind it, you find out if it's worthy. Okay? And so I think that the picture of worship is meant to be we have tested out the faithfulness, the ability of our God to come through for us. And he has been found worthy. And so what we do is we gather to declare God himself is worthy. He's the only one who comes through for us when he's, when he's wound and taught, when he's turned, when he's tested. God himself is worthy of our worship to, to come through for us. This is what worship is, to test to see if something is worthy of your face, and then you trust it with your actions. Because if a rope is worthy, what can you do with it? Anything. You can, you can, you can do, I mean, basically a rope is a, is a way to move force across space and time. It's, it's like literally a rope can do anything once you put your faith in it, but until it's tested, you won't put it in critical places in your life. And so what we're doing in our walk with God is we are worshiping by testing out God's faithfulness and then growing in our trust of God. That's what he does, is he invites us to put our faith in him, then he comes through for us, and then we can grow our faith as he shows up again and again in, in, in more and more vital ways. I know some of you are engineers and you don't know, you don't know how faithful a material substance is until it's been tested to its point of fault. If you take a rope, there's some point at which all ropes will fail. Even the massive ones that like, you know, you use on 
you know, frigates. <laughs> uh, these, these, these giant, have you ever seen these like in Baltimore, they have these giant ropes that are wound that are like this big or even chains that like are the size of a human being. And until they've been put to the test, you don't know what they can do. But that's what our worship is, is to literally invite God to come through for us again and again, and he will prove himself worthy. And so when we gather, we test God through prayer and invitation and reflection and celebration. We remember what God's done, and we look forward and invite God to come through for us. And then week after week, we come together and we celebrate and say, look how my God provided. And we, we encourage one another by saying, this is the kind of God that we have. In the last few weeks, we talked about our priestly duties. And, and our, as priests, we do some work, right? We, we have this work of being living sacrifices. It used to be that we, we made sacrifices. We were the butchers who took the clean animals, and we kept ourselves clean so that we could offer this sacrifice. But now, as, as we follow Jesus, we have a different kind of role from being butchers to becoming sacrifice ourselves. Our bodies, our lives are a living sacrifice. So we have this work of literally sacrificing our desires and our wants for the sake of the world to experience God. And we remember with rituals and words and readings, we remember who we are and who we serve. So when we, we as priests, in the ancient days, what they would do is they would gather and they would tell the story. That's why we read scripture, is to remember how God has come through. That's why we give testimony, is to remember what God does. And so that's what we continue to do as his priests. We, we gather and we remember who we are, our identity. We remember who we serve and how faithful he is and that he's worthy of our of our attention, he's worthy of our trust. And that's, I think, a lot of the reason why modern churches have become so, so thin, so, so unable to keep us and grow us spiritually, is because we've turned worship into a, uh, what's, what's a way to not overstate this but to say it clearly? Uh, we've, we've turned worship into a sing-along, into something that we do to get us ready to hear God's word. We've turned worship into um, a prologue to our gatherings. It's like our, our liturgy is full of music because that's what we do. But most of the time when we're singing, it's, it's much more about the emotional response I have to God in the music rather than looking at how God has proven himself worthy and holding him up to the world to say, our God is faithful. And we look to music to fill us up with um, spiritual warm fuzzies, I think is the technical term. <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you show up and you're like, I'm, I'm ready, man. I'm ready this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to sing hard today. I'm really going to sing. And then you, you sing, and uh, it feels good, but a lot of times it's much more about the, your experience and, like, how you're, how you're de deriving something from it. So all of that to say, when we talk about liturgy, we're talking about how then shall we live? Like how do we take this, this calling as priests, this work that God's given us, and how do we live a life of worship and a life of, of being transformed in the way of Jesus? So we're gonna be, we're starting in John four today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter four. And we're going to be in verse 21 through 24. I think we have it right here. There it is. Jesus replied. He said, believe me, dear woman, 
The time is coming when you'll no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one that you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, is coming. indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I think that this was perplexing to this woman. He's speaking to a woman who was a Samaritan who had been excluded from Jewish worship in Jerusalem at the temple. And she's asking him, well, is it, is it going to be here at Mount Gerizim or is it going to be in Jerusalem in the last day? And Jesus says, you really don't get what's going on. And I'm sure he's thinking, in fact, actually Jerusalem is not going to exist in 50 years. It's just going to be wiped off the face. That temple's never going to be rebuilt again. What he is saying here is that you don't understand what worship is. For thousands of years, the Jews thought that worship was showing up, bringing the right sacrifice, and trying to sin less. Okay? This is a simple formula. I show up three times a year. We offer sacrifices. I try to sin less, and then hopefully one day God restores all things. We're hoping for this thing. And Jesus is like, actually, you're, you're misunderstanding. Worship is going to be released from one place into all places. What happened at Pentecost that we celebrated last week is the democratization of worship from being held in a place and a time to being in all places at all times where the Spirit of God himself can be present to you, just like the high priest on the Day of Atonement who would enter in and offer the Lamb in the very Shekinah glory of the Holy of Holies, the Holy Spirit himself is going to be made known to all of the earth. And so our worship then becomes everywhere all the time. And Jesus is, he's trying to give a picture to this woman. I, I still don't think that she got it. But I love that he says, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about, it's not about the music. It's not about the words. It's not about how you feel, okay? It's literally being present to the one holy God. It's acknowledging that there's this thin curtain between this realm and the next realm where God himself wants to abide with us. And so when we worship, it's me saying, in this moment right now, as I talk about John chapter 4, the Holy Spirit is here. And our work is to listen to the Father and to pay attention and then to trust him enough to do the things he's called us to. And then when he comes through for us, we worship him and then we lean harder on the rope. We pull it tighter because we know when I put God to the test, he showed up for me. Jesus is shifting their view about worship from being about place to being about purpose, from being about special religious attention to detail to God himself inviting them to do the kind of true worship that he was hoping for. And uh, we're going to be in the book of James for most of the summer. And James is a wild book. It's not something to read by yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, this is, this is the thing of diff difficult, difficult passages. But we're going to be in the book of James. 
because he talks about what it means to be true worshipers. He gives the picture of what Jesus, James is the brother of Jesus, and he's going, well, people didn't really get what Jesus was talking about, so I better write a letter to the church to make sure that they get it. So in James chapter 1, verse 19, says this. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So get rid of all filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you, it's like face blindness. What, did, what do I look like? But, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. And here's, here's where James gets down to the nitty-gritty. If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. And your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion, worship in the sight of God the Father, means caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. James wants to lay out, this is what worship is. Worship is not about attendance at church. Worship is not about doing the liturgy the right way. Worship is not about doing your daily devotions every day for 15 minutes and making sure to journal just the right questions. Worship is transformed from being about ritual to being about faith and obedience. This is what it means to worship now. And in the new priesthood that God has created us, we, we worship not by, and I'm so thankful God got rid of the temple, right? Wouldn't it be really annoying to have to go to a temple just to hang out with God? Like it, or even like, as somebody who feels called into like leadership and ministry, that would really it'd be horrible for me to have to like sit there and learn all the parts of a, of a cow so that I can cut it the right way. <laughs> I just, I don't want to be a butcher. Like, that's clearly what I don't want to be. Um, but here's James saying, that's not what worship was ever meant to be. And even the old worship was meant to point to this. In the Old Testament, we see God saying, I don't, I don't actually like your incense, and I don't care about your animals. You know what's really good for me is when you care for widows and orphans. When you take care of the poor. Because that's the only time where you know if your faith is full of actual faith when it costs you something. This is just a huge part of Jesus' teaching to rethink the things that we're about. To rethink how we think about things. To repent. That is our worship. Not just religious ceremony or words or trembling in front of God. James is going to squarely connect it with our lives. And this is going to be a discomforting journey for us as Western Christians in 21st century, okay? Worship looks different than we imagine. Worship we see here is about hearing what God wants and doing what he calls us to. This is the fundamental act of worship is just being present to God, 
listening to him and doing what he says. And too often we not only ignore him, but then when we do hear him, we don't do what he says. And then we still want to have the benefits of religious community and the, the warm fuzzies we get with worship music, but we're missing out on what it really means to be God's people. Because you can believe in God, you can hear his voice, you can attend services, you can call yourself a Christian. I think that's a quoted word now. Uh, you can give a lot of money, you can have important roles in churchy organizations and still have no place in God's family because it was never about those things. Those things are lagging indicators of what happens in our souls when we turn to God. This is the shift we need to make. Let God shape our lives instead of us shaping our lives. Let God shape our lives. Jesus says in John 12, this is something I say over and over again, he says, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. Everything that Jesus does, the Father sent him to do. Jesus was the only person in all of human history who has set himself to only do what the Father called him to do. And this is our work as followers of Jesus. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. So let me ask you this. Is your life shaped by God or is it shaped by the demands of the world around you? Once you think about your last week, once you think about your schedule, once you think about how you spent your money and your time, is your life shaped by God directing you? Are the choices that you made about how to spend your time, how to shape your days, how to spend your minutes and your money, is it shaped by God or is it shaped by the world and the obligations and duties you have to others? Pull out your calendar. Literally, pull out your calendar. Pull out your phone. It's all right. Pull out your phone. I got mine right here. <laughs> I mean, you're just, I want you to feel it though, Crystal. So pull it out. <laughs> Open up Outlook. It's easier to, the monthly look because it doesn't feel as intimate. All right. Well, let's look through this. <laughs> All the semi-retired people can ignore this because you do whatever you want, okay? <laughs> um, I mean, I look at this and the only things that I, that I have put in here are the things that I'm obligated to do because other people are demanding them of me. Business meeting, ministry meeting, barbecue I kind of want to go to, but I have to go to, worship, all these things are because somebody else is shaping my life by their emails and their texts and their requests. What God wants to do is he wants to shape your life. Did you have any structure before your week began? 
Did you set aside space for the things that God wanted? Is there time for rest and time for work in the proportion that God set out for us? Is there time for community, meals together, learning the way of Jesus? Is there time for serving others, for generosity, for connecting with people in need? Is there space for your neighbors? Is there time to talk with your spouse? Is there time to delight in your children? Or did you just take what came this week? So much of our world is just dealing with the demands around us. What God wants to do is not let our obligations be our driver. Have you ever met somebody who doesn't care about other people's opinion of them? They're, it, from the outside, it looks really nice because they don't do anything they don't want to do. They tend to be very lonely, broken people, but they don't care at all about what other people want. They, have, they feel no obligation, no duty towards their family, towards their friends. I've got, a, I've got a friend, and she basically walked away from her teenage kids because she wanted to be free of the work of caring for them. You know, there's all sorts of people who do those sorts of things, live without any obligation. That's not what I'm saying, but what if obligations didn't drive us? But what if we place the obligations in their right place in our lives? What if instead of our, our, the scaffolding of our life being a schedule dictated by the expectations of our bosses and our churches and our families, and we say, God, here is my life. What we're talking about is creating a rule of life. Saying together, I'm going to let God shape how my weeks look, how my days look. I'm going to start, we've all, you've all probably seen some preacher come up here and they had like rocks and, and pebbles and sand and water and a jar. And they go, can all this stuff fit in here? And they go, no, and they fill it up with rocks, and they go, is it full? And they go, oh, yeah, it's full, and then they fill it up with pebbles. Is it full, sand, and then water? Like, that, that principle is real, because that's the way time flows. It's going to flow to where the weakest place in our life is. And so if we start by creating a scaffolding, a rule of life that's dictated by God, all of a sudden everything else is going to fall into place, and the things that don't matter are going to fall off our schedule. What if you had space for the important things? What if we lived simply enough so that we could work less and not let money demand that we do the things that we're not called to? Our work is to shape our lives that show that we worship the right person, that we put our faith in God. He's obviously worthy of our trust. And if he's worthy of our trust, the best way we can worship is listen to him and obey him so that we're shaped by his priorities and his value. So what is a rule of life? It's an intentional way that we choose to live in light of God's voice, his call, and his priorities. Now, some of you are going to be, oh yeah, I saw this TikTok person, and they said you have to Wake up at 5 o'clock every day. You've got to set aside two, t two hours for intense personal development. And then you work out for an hour. And then you work for six hours. You know, like they have like these, 
the, the world has like created ways of being for us. You can buy a template for maximizing your schedule from the latest business guru at every turn. But that's not the kind of thing. We're not trying to self-actualize with our rule of life. All the things that you don't do well and you want to do better, yeah, okay, you could, you could set aside some time to learn the piano next week, and that would probably like, be good for you. I'm not going to say it's not. You could probably um, shape your life in a way that made you feel better about how you manage your time. That's a nice thing, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, instead of beating ourselves up with daily and weekly and monthly duties, what we're going to do is we're going to shaft, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna shape a rule of life it's about living out our values that are shaped by God, that are about learning the way of God, that are about teaching our kids the way of God, that are about remembering what our lives are for. And what it does to us is it transforms us. We've talked about this before, but in the 90s, um, someone, it was probably Francis Schaeffer, one of the pseudo-intellectuals of Christianity, but they said that if we change how people think, people will change how they live and boy were they wrong because <laughs> a lot of people know how to think just right and don't know how to live there's a sociologist who's a brilliant guy named james james smith james smith he wrote this book called desiring the kingdoms and what he says and i think is absolutely true that you will see is that we are shaped by what we do and what we do shapes how we think Here's what he says. He says, and he calls them cultural liturgies, which I like. Liturgies, they aim our love to different ends precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. Think about that for a second. Our cultural liturgies, how we live, they aim our love to different ends by training our hearts through our bodies. And then he follows up, he says, it's not that we start with beliefs and doctrine and then come up with worship practices that properly express these beliefs. That's the old way that we used to think. Rather, we begin with worship, and then articulated beliefs bubble up from how we live in worship. Doctrines are the cognitive, theoretical articulation of what we understand when we pray. So literally, and, and uh, I, I would have argued this with all of my theologian friends in seminary, is that our theology is a Rorschach test for what we value rather than our theology being driven by what the Bible says. Your theology says more about you than it says about God because it's normally what we're doing is we're trying to justify how we live with some sort of theoretical um, basis in philosophy and theology for how we want to live because that's how things work. We start with how we live. And so what's more important and I, I believe deeply in orthodoxy and understanding who God is. But I think what we see in Jesus and in James is that what we believe will be shaped by our orthopraxy, by living rightly. And what you'll, what you'll find is that when you live in the wisdom of God and when you do the things he's called you to, you will discover that God himself gave you the gift of that wisdom. And you'll worship him for loving you enough to showing you the way to his kingdom. So, instead of having a quiet time where you think deeply about God, I want us to start thinking about a rule of life 
that shapes us day in and day out at listening to the Father and doing what he's called us to. We receive practices from God and we have our hearts and our minds shaped by those practices. It actually starts with submission to the process of formation before we ever understand what they mean or why they're valuable. Um, did anybody watch the new Hustle movie? Uh, it's a basketball movie on Netflix, came out this last week. It's phenomenal, even for non-basketball fans. Um, but it's about a guy named Stanley Sugarman, who is a, um, he's a scout for the Philadelphia 76ers, and he's looking for a transformational player that's going to help them get over the hump and, and win some playoff games. And he goes to Spain and sees this street hustler, um, and he's a phenomenal basketball player. His name's Bo Cruz, and he brings him to the United States to go to some tryouts and uh, and eventually he gets into the combine, the NBA combine. And while he's there, he, he starts out with a game with the number one player coming out of college, and he just gets roasted, just flat out annihilated on the court because he hasn't been shaped enough to play at that level. He'd been playing street ball in Spain for years, and he's trying to put him into the highest levels of basketball. And what Stanley does is he says, you're not ready. And so he pulls him out from playing games, and this is, I mean, this is literally a remake of Rocky, when you really think about it. It's in Philadelphia, and it's about him training and shaping his body through his experience so that he sees the value of the training. But you can't actually understand what Stanley Sugarman is doing to Bo Cruz until he enters in and submits to the process of formation. Do you understand? That's what spiritual life is, is saying, I'm going to submit to the formation in the way of Jesus, and then as I experience life from it, then I'll understand who God is. Instead of saying I have to understand everything about God before I can obey, you actually can't understand God before you enter in and obey what he's called you to. So, I'm asking you to rethink how you're thinking, and then start living out what God's called you to. I also have Karate Kid and Luke Skywalker if you need some other movie references. I, no, it's okay. <clears throat> We're shaped by our lives. We're shaped by how we live. So I wanna, I wanna invite you. We're gonna do a little bit of work here this morning around building a rule of life that we receive from the Father. This summer is all about receiving the practices the way and intentionally pursuing them before we can understand the power that they have to transform us. And so, I want you to, we're going to take a few minutes, and uh, I got a few questions for you I'm going to put on the screen. Okay. As we're crafting our rule of life, these are some of the key questions we need to ask. What has he told you that needs to be a part of your life? My bet is somewhere along the way, God has poked you in the chest and said, here's what I want you to do. And there's something that you may have said yes or no to, but there's something God has shown you that needs to be a part of your life. It may have been a part of a sermon series. It may have been recently. It may have been a long time ago, but there's probably something God told you. I want you to write that down in your notes, in your phone, whatever. And then I want you to ask, what does his word say? I'm not going to... I can give you a bunch, and we're going to be preaching through it this summer, but what has his word said? What have we been taught as a community? Like, what are the things that...
God has been showing you about the way of Jesus that needs to be a part of your, the rhythms of your life, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. And then lastly, what do you need to stop so that you can start the right things in your life? This is where the rubber meets the road. There's 168 hours in the week, and a lot of them are filled up with stuff we're not supposed to be doing. So the question is, what are you going to stop that's going to allow you to enter into and practice the way of Jesus? Okay? I'm, I'm purposely leaving this vague because I want you to have some space. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And uh, we're going to just have a couple of minutes of... Joel's going to play a sweet rift on his guitar <laughs> while, while you're thinking. Uh, and these questions are going to stay up here as, as we're kind of preparing for this next... Um, song of worship because I, I, want, I want you to listen. So take a few moments and then during the last song I'm going to invite you to come up and receive communion and uh, we, we started doing communion every week like five months ago something like that. Like we, we've kind of turned it into a part of our liturgy as a people and it's easy for it to get um, rote and normal and everyday kind of thing uh, but this the work that we do by receiving what happens at the table, this is a part of the liturgy Jesus gave us. That week in, week out, we remember that he himself is faithful to do the work of redemption. So we come to the table, it's remembering week in, week out, that we belong because of his work. So take a couple minutes while we're playing a little bit of music, and then we'll, and then we'll continue on. Come receive the elements uh, during this last song. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.